Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm talking with Charles Freeman. Charles is a freelance academic historian with many interests in the history of European culture and thought. He is the author of many books on ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome, civilizations of the ancient Mediterranean. He is the author of The Closing of the Western Mind. Uh, and he is the author of the, the new book, uh, The Reopening of the Western Mind, The Resurgence of Intellectual Life from the End of Antiquity to the Dawn of the Enlightenment. Uh, I have to say it's a marvelous book. It has much, much uh, rich data in it. It's a beautiful book as well. It's, it's um, printed uh, on some really, really nice pages that have really good uh, color photographs in there, which really... Um, when you're reading a lot of history and dates and facts and stuff that maybe we, we don't read all the time, it's really actually a nice uh, accompaniment. We start by talking about how this new book, The Reopening of the Western Mind, is a type of sequel to his previous book, The Closing of the Western Mind. As I think I make the joke in the conversation, uh, we had the closing and we got the reopening. And so Charles is there to walk us through both of that. Um, we talk about the preservation of text after the fall of the Roman Empire, something that, at least for, for me, I haven't thought that much about and, and how that was really important. And, and uh, he spent some time in the book and we talk about that. We talk about Charlemagne and his interaction with the church and various popes. We talk about the importance of Augustine and Western thought. Uh, we talk about, of course, the Great Schism of 1054. We talk about the Age of Reason in the Middle Ages. The impact of Muslim scholars before the Middle Ages, the importance of Thomas Aquinas and him incorporating Greek philosophy into theology. He's very um, momentous in that aspect. We talk about the move towards humanism and what that means, and along with the importance of uh, Petriarch. We talk about the Plato Renaissance, how um, after the Middle Ages there was this uh, push to re introduce Plato and many of the Greeks into uh, Western thought um, and how this was also incorporated into Christianity. We talk about the impact of colonialism and conversion. We discuss the Reformation and the big figures of Calvin and Luther. And overall, we talk about just the reopening of the Western mind that gets us to the Enlightenment um, and, and many other movements in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. I have to say, uh, Charles is wonderful at explaining uh, a kind of through line and a narrative from big parts of uh, of history that we many times neglect or just kind of skip over. Again, unless you're in you know uh, in this field or you're studying this, and he has a really nice way of taking a lot of content and really trying to get at the crux of of what's going on. Um, he definitely does in the book, and I, and I think it comes through here in the conversation, which, which I highly enjoy. Um, as always, you can find this conversation and all other past and future conversations at my Substack, free Substack, which is uh, convergingdialogues.substack.com. Uh, give me a follow. I'm also on YouTube. You can find me there. You can follow me there, all the appropriate places. Uh, and now I bring you Charles Freeman. I am here with Charles Freeman. Uh, Charles, uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, quite delighted to have you on here. Well, I'm very pleased in in order in, in able to talk to you about uh, my book, The Reopening of the Western Mind, which has taken three or four years to write 
and it is now published in the United States. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a marvelous book. Uh, again, uh, the reopening of the Western mind, the resurgence of intellectual life from the end of antiquity to the dawn of the Enlightenment. And if I'm uh, not mistaken, this is sort of a almost a sequel to your one of your previous books, the closing of the Western mind. So we had a closing and now we got a reopening. So maybe just tell us uh, a little bit how you see this book connected to that one and and what made you want to to write uh, this this uh, current uh, volume. The Roman Empire in the West, in the Western Europe, fell in 476 as the final date. And there had been a disintegration of the provinces for instance, Britain, where I'm talking from at the moment, uh, the legions, the Roman legions were withdrawn in 409 to 410, and the very quickly civilization collapsed completely. And gradually the empire fragmented in the West. In the East, the Byzantine Empire or Byzantine Empire continued until 1453. But we are talking about the West. And there was a complete loss of literacy, of civilization, of trade, of all the features of what we might call civilization. Mm. And so it was also uh, at, at the time when Christianity was becoming an absolute authoritarian regime, really. Uh, fostered by the emperors mm. uh, the emperor constantine and the uh, the emperor theodosius both of them in the 4th century they established christianity as the main state religion and they also integrated a certain amount of doctrine which was considered heretical to uh, to dismiss i mean for instance the the uh, doctrine of the Trinity was established by Constantine and established by uh, Theodosius, the emperor, in 381. And uh, at that point, the doctrine really became non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. So that you got a closing of a very rich tradition of Greek philosophical thought and discussion, mm -hmm. uh, which the Romans had also adopted. So you do get a closing, and I am beginning to think of, uh, in this book, of the reopening from a very low base of literacy and of civilization, which is why I start in 500. Well, I mean, you do a, a masterful job. I mean, it's uh, it, I, I'll be honest; uh, these these things aren't uh, aren't too intimidating for me. But uh, it's a large book; it's a, about eight hundred pages. And I have to say, just as a kind of footnote here, uh, at least the the final copy I got, it has all of these really nice color photographs throughout the throughout the book as you read. So it, it gives it a nice uh, nice extra kind of uh, pop to it. It's really really wonderful, beautifully uh, uh, laid out. And um, it's a while it's large. I mean, of course, you're talking about, <clears throat> you know, many hundreds of years that you cover. You you, you kind of break it up into to five big parts um, of, of the book. And you start, as you as you as you mentioned, with um, literacy and the preservation of text, which I thought was 
really fascinating. It was a really fascinating part of the book. Um, could you explain, I guess, how um, we were able to have some of these texts, right? As you, you kind of gave the, the prelude there, there was this kind of closing, but um, how are we at this time around 500 trying to preserve a certain text? And and maybe just for, to, to note that, you know, this is, you know, a thousand years before Gutenberg, right? Before we can get the press and all that stuff. So, so you know, manuscripts and books looked a little bit different. So maybe just set the stage at this point of why this was so important early on to uh, preserve certain texts. Well, the you have to remember that most of the texts were on papyrus, which mm -hmm. is a plant which comes from along the Nile in Egypt, and uh, it you can get the you can cut the stalks and unroll them, and then put uh, crossways the uh, the strip the strips of papyrus. But uh, it is very very um, fragile. In the Egypt itself, it, in the very dry climate of Egypt, papyrus is preserved, and we still find a lot of papyrus uh, in in e Egypt in archaeological excavations. Mm. In the West, it's vulnerable to damp and to fire, mm. and therefore it can very easily decay. We have a very recent discovered letter from the uh, medical man Galen, who uh, he, in the, in, in the second century AD, he complains of many of his texts which had been preserved in a library. He left for safekeeping in a library in Rome where the fire had broken out and it had destroyed many of his papyrus. So, of course, with the collapse of uh, the Roman Empire, and the collapse of all the the uh, administrative background, you then got, of course, uh, a lot of the decay of papyrus. Mm. And it depended really on how many uh, copies of texts survived. And some of the great texts, uh, for instance, Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey from the 8th century BC, were all so well known, and every, they were like the plays of Shakespeare, mm -hmm. in the sense that everybody knew them, and so there were lots of copies of them. So they were able to be preserved, and so the copies were found. And some of the copies were, of course, uh, kept in uh, the Greek East, the Byzantine Empire, and they came eventually into uh, Latin translations into the West, and the Arabs also uh, conquering the parts, large parts of the Byzantine Empire, were able to preserve a lot of the texts. But we do get a few figures in the West who deliberately make a policy of copying out and saving texts. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is Boethius, mm -hmm. who was a Roman aristocrat, he was born about 480. He uh, he was clearly an intellectual. We have no record of him having lived in the Greek East, but his Greek was so well and so so um, excellent that it's almost certain that he did live part of his life or part of his upbringing in the Greek East. Mm. 
and so he mastered Greek, which was quite rare for Roman aristocrats at that period. And he set himself uh, the task of translating a lot of the Greek texts into Latin. And he would, he tried to uh, he tried to translate all the works of Aristotle and Plato, the great Greek philosophers that were available to him, mm-hmm. and uh, many other uh, texts. Unfortunately, he uh, became embroiled in the uh, this, the tensions of the court of Theodoric who were the Gothic leader who had su- succeeded the after the Roman Empire collapsed. And we don't know quite what happened to him, but he was a senior uh, uh, civil servant within Theodoric's uh, administration. And it's possible that he was involved or he was suspicious. Uh, there were suspicions that he was involved in... Uh, the disputes about who would succeed Theodoric, as he only had a small son. He was put into prison, and he wrote there a famous text, which was became one of the most important texts of the uh, Middle Ages, called The Consolation of Philosophy. Mm. And it's although he was a Christian, there is no mention at all of any Christian theme or whatever in the consolation of philosophy, but he argues that that he had a dream of which an old lady representing philosophy appeared to him and consoled him in his uh, imprisonment. And it became a really important text. But he also wrote individual texts on music and arithmetic, and they became very important during the Middle Ages, and they were uh, they were they were texts which were used were among the in, in the universities uh, to uh, to educate uh, and to uh, introduce students to music and arithmetic. So he was an important figure, even though his life ended tragically. We have another important figure, Cassiodorus, mm-hmm. who uh, 480 to possibly 580, he certainly lived into his 90s, mm-hmm. and those dates give him 100 years. Mm-hmm. And he founded a library in southern Italy, a vivarium, as it's called, and he gathered together a number of uh copyists, people who were able to copy out old texts, and he created a very important uh, library there, even though we don't know very much about what happened to the library. So originally, Cassiodorus was considered one of the great saviors of the texts, but in fact, scholarship has shown very little evidence that many of his books survived. But one of them, a Bible, uh, ended up in northern Britain and was copied out. Uh, the whole li- the whole Bible was copied out, and that was found, and uh, it was supposed to be a present to the Pope and was taken down from uh, northern Britain all the way across France into Italy, and it was somehow abandoned 
uh, in a monastery there. And it it was rediscovered in the 19th century. And I have seen it. It was brought into one of the great exhibitions of uh, medieval manuscripts in London uh, two or three years ago. And it was a vast book. Um, and it took um, 10 uh, scribes to write. We can find that there are 10 different uh uh, writings, uh, scripts on it, and it's supposed to have needed 515 calves to be slaughtered in order to make the parchment, which had been replacing uh, papyrus because it was parchment uh, is a skin of an animal, uh, and in cases of uh, goats or sheep or calves, in this case, uh, and which which was a you know which which survived uh, compared to papyrus which had uh, decayed. So we do have these texts which have survived, uh, mainly of course Christian texts. Yeah. Most of the monastery libraries uh, had Christian texts, but they had a few secular texts, a few histories, a few uh, you know a few legal texts, and so on, which had survived also. So yeah, these I remember reading about these. These two figures were essential, and I guess for listeners, it should be important that to know <clears throat> for these ancient texts at that time in the in the in the uh, fifth century, you know what, you know who was the audience. So folks like you know you and I can go to the bookstore and and we can mm. you know buy a book off the shelf and you know we can read, right? But that wasn't quite the case in in uh, in four eighty A.D. So, you know, this was at the time, the preservation of text seems more of an intellectual pursuit, more for the academy, more for uh, things that were going on, or as you said, for more religious types of institutions. But the importance of this is that downstream, as, you know, hundreds of years pass, they keep preserving this. Eventually, it does get to, you know, folks like, you know, yourself or myself. And so there's a kind of downstream effect here. But I guess... What was this, you know, preserving these texts from these two figures, how this was super important for maintaining understanding of our uh, human history, our anthropology, civilizations, uh, other religious aspects of this, why this was critical for uh, literacy and for just, you know, community and things of that nature? Well, uh, we do have evidence that there was a great sense of loss of the of literacy uh, i mm. quote uh, several times in my early chapters sidonius apollonaris who was a roman aristocrat uh, in the fourth uh, in the fifth century fourth and fifth century and he was complaining his letters survive and he was complaining about the the collapse of literacy and he he writes to people saying thank goodness you can still write proper latin because it completely has disappeared and we have gregory of the tours in uh, gregory of tours in the uh, a, a french city in the 6th century saying People have asked me to write a history of the Franks, but because nobody else can write, and I'm the one of the few people who can still write. And we know that from the history of the uh, the Franks, which has survived, 
that his Latin was already diminishing. Uh, he was beginning to make mistakes. And by the 8th century, you do begin to get uh, the collapse of literacy, uh, even among those people who are copying out texts. Mm. And so the, the, the monasteries did, did actually keep some of the uh, texts. Uh, I think this can be over-exaggerated. I mean, in some cases, you, you have people who are scholars who argue that the monasteries were responsible for the saving of the texts. And to, that, to some extent, that is true. But an awful lot of the classical texts um, it, it you know did not survive as i have been saying the parchment was uh you needed an awful lot of sheep goats or calves to even compose one bible i mean 515 calves were needed for one bible so a monastery had to be very wealthy, and it also needed people who could un could actually copy out the text by hand, and that took a, you know took several years often for a Bible. For instance, uh, a Bible may have may have um, uh, may you you may have um, needed ten years to in order to um, compose a Bible. So. The amount of the texts that actually survive in monasteries was fairly limited. And by the 8th century, uh, before Charlemagne, and we'll come on to Charlemagne, you could have got complete collapse of literacy and a complete collapse of of all uh, remaining texts. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's a. Uh, uh, something that I think folks don't think about too often, but but the again we we go on and on today about language and cognitive abilities and how language sets us apart as humans, and certainly we can speak, but the ability to read and to write and to have literacy in the modern world is 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 essential. I and mean, it's obviously, I mean, my myself included, it's something we kind of just take for granted. But you know that it was a real a real thing that we didn't want to lose literacy. So. You mentioned Charlemagne, right? He's a obviously a big, big, big figure. I guess the question I have here, and you talk about it in in the book, is what was his relationship with the papacy, and how he was instrumental in creating this sort of hierarchy of archbishops and bishops and parishes, and and also his contribution to uh, preserving text during his his reign. I think you have to start with what was happening to the city of Rome. The city of Rome has been estimated at the height of the Roman Empire to have a, possibly a million inhabitants. Mm, uh, it had depended enormously on aqueducts bringing in water, fresh water. It also depended on Mediterranean trade, bringing in corn and grain and uh, many other uh, staples of of, uh, of of food in order to survive as a city of that size. Mm -hmm. With the collapse of the empire uh, in the West, the Rome really dis completely disintegrated. In the 6th century, the wars uh, from the Byzantine East in an attempt to reconquer the West were pretty well disastrous. Uh, in Italy itself, 
And at that time, the Goths, who, who uh, uh, the, the tribal Goths who were occupying much of Italy, cut the aqueducts into Rome. And the Mediterranean trade had also collapsed, so that it was very difficult for uh, Rome to, uh, to get food. So that the population probably went down to something like 30,000. Mm. From a million, it also, uh, Rome itself was uh, very subject to disease in the low lying. Uh, areas around the river Tiber, uh, malaria took over and it it, therefore Rome was an an entity um, in sense of uh, city life. The popes were, um, you know, they saw themselves as essentially situated in Rome uh, after all, the verse of Matthew saying, uh, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, mm-hmm. and the legend that Peter had been buried, in martyred and buried in Rome, mm-hmm. so that the the papacy was in a very weak position, uh, and partly because what, the average reign of a pope was only about four or five years, and this goes on right through to the medieval times. So you need a strong man, and you need a strong man to save you and protect you. And the man was Charlemagne. Now, Charlemagne had grown up in the uh, court of the Franks, and his grandfather had uh, established a dynasty. Charlemagne, Charlemagne uh, succeeded in uh, 768 with his brother. His brother died three years later, and Charlemagne was a sole ruler of uh, the Frankish kingdom. He was an enormous man, very loquacious, very charismatic. We have his bones, and you can actually measure that he was probably over six foot, which was, of course, um, a big good size for that age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, he was also a great conqueror. Not only did he establish control over over central France, but uh, the popes actually asked him that, to protect them against the uh, expanding people, the Lombards, who had the Lombard kingdoms had, had uh, occupied northern Italy. And in 751, the Lombards had captured one of the great cities of uh, Ravenna, a city which uh, was still part of the Byzantine Empire in the east. Mm -hmm. So the popes were very worried about the expansion of 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 the Lombard kingdom, and they asked Charlemagne to come down uh, and sort it out, and he did it sorted out very effectively. So he moved into northern Italy, and he claimed that uh, his successors would still have influence in northern Italy. So he was termed the protector of Rome. And in 800, the Pope Leo III, who had been beaten up by aristocrats uh, and was enormously aware of his uh, weakness, summoned Charlemagne down to Rome and created 
a post for him, a title for him of Holy Roman Emperor, and that the uh, Charlemagne uh, had therefore uh, given created a strong position with the between the emperors and the popes. It wasn't an easy relationship because as the popes grew in power, uh, the, uh, the successors of Charlemagne as Holy Roman Emperor um, were obviously in conflict with these two great figures of uh, great uh, institutions, the papacy and the Holy Roman uh, Emperors. Uh, they were obviously in conflict or p possibly in conflict over the years that that uh, that followed yeah it's interesting because it sounds like in the beginning of the first you know or at the at the beginning of the first millennium that there's these tensions between uh within christianity christianity out of the first century after um you know time of christ and you know, after rome and all these things it becomes a, a local following and it's very localized and i guess you could you know it depends on who you ask i guess with constantine it starts to become a little bit more centralized, but here, as we're getting to you know 1000 AD, there's this this aspect that you talk about with local Christianity having some kind of tension between papal authority, as you're mentioning here, and then also with wealth and how the wealth of the church is becoming uh, a, a, a factor here. So maybe just talk about these, I guess, two major tensions at this time around the first millennium. Uh, between uh, within Christianity, as the popes um, increase their power, uh, we 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 really start off in the middle of the eleventh century. The emperor, uh, the Holy Roman emperors, were not necessarily direct genetic dynastic successors of Charlemagne. Uh, the the post remained until 186, and Napoleon actually abolished it. So it's a thousand years, and different dynasties and different fa uh, families uh, became Holy Roman emperors. And one of them, Henry III, came down in the middle of the 11th century to Rome. Uh, he was disgusted by the weakness of the papacy, and he started uh, appointing popes uh, under his own auspices. Um, one of the popes uh, which emerged was Gregory VII in the second half of the uh, 11th century, and Gregory was a formidable character. He uh, he introduced a uh, a text, a, a bull, a papal bull called Dictatus Papai, which even said that he had the right to depose an emperor if uh, an emperor. Uh, offended him. Mm. So you got a, 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 a potential great conflict uh, with Henry III died and Henry IV, his son, took over uh, in the, who was only in his 20s. But there was an, a massive conflict of which um, the popes tried to, the Pope Gregory VII tried to excommunicate Henry and so we have what's called the investiture controversy. Who had the right to appoint bishops and clergy and so on? And and uh, 
and it was a finally resolved in 1122 with the Concordat of Worms, which uh, set set out what each um, uh, figure could do when there was an important bishopric to um, to uh, to settle. You know, uh, if you had a a, a German Holy Roman Emperor and he needed a, a top man to be his leading bishop, um, he obviously had to have some kind of uh, power to actually decide what what uh, uh, who he did appoint. But the pope, the popes also insisted that they had to give recognition to that um, uh, to that bishop. So there was a concordat which uh, eventually settled the investiture controversy. But the big problem, the as the popes became more absolute and uh, insisted on having absolute power, mm. you uh, and also the uh, the wealth of the church, including an enormous amount of land, uh, probably about a third of the land of Europe was under church control wow. uh, many of the monasteries the great monasteries of western europe were founded by aristocrats and who had given land and so on and patronage now as uh, literacy grew again in the 11th 12th century you get a number of people who start looking at the gospel uh, texts and they, they said, well, it, Jesus made it very clear that you should renounce wealth. Mm -hmm. So there was a tension there which went on into Christianity uh, throughout the centuries between those who uh, maintained a very conservative structure, uh, wealthy structure, an authoritarian structure of the church, and those who actually... Uh, rejected uh, any kind of wealth. Sometimes it was sorted out very well. For instance, Francis of Assisi, who is a well-known figure, mm -hmm. he renounced uh, total wealth. There was even a story that he, one point, he threw off all his clothes in public to show that he had really renounced wealth. Mm -hmm. He came down to the Pope Innocent III and he said, uh, look, I, the church is in decay. It's, it's corrupt. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, um, all kinds of bishops have bought their, their, their bishoprics. Uh, so you really need to sort it out. And Innocent was supposed to have had that night a dream of which uh, he heard that he saw a church a church building crumbling down. And he went to back to the next morning to Francis and said, as long as you are loyal to the papacy, uh, I will find an order which renounces um, all wealth. And that's how the foundation of the Franciscans. Mm. And they literally, they went out in the streets and they relied on um, begging for um, for any kind of sustenance. And the other order, which was um, also important, founded at the same time with the Dominicans, mm -hmm. founded by Dominic of Guzman, uh, who was uh, a Spaniard. And 
the Dominicans became the great intellectual order, but they also renounced wealth. And in fact, mm. they even when traveling between cities, they were not allowed to ride on horseback. They had to walk mm. uh, in order to show that they had completely renounced wealth. So you do get some kind of integration of uh, the those who preached poverty within the church, but there were an awful lot of uh, people who had um, rejected uh, wealth who were declared heretical. Uh, they weren't, uh, for instance, there were the Valdesians who had had um, demanded the right to be able to preach according to their own. Uh, sense of the Gospels, and they were excommunicated and uh, and and declared heretical and hunted down by the Inquisition, which had run by the Dominicans. It's, it's so interesting how these tensions spawn off all of these different you know groups that we know about or these traditions that we know about today. I do want to ask you about the obviously, if we're talking about the 11th century, we have to mention the. The Great Schism of 1054, which many people will know, is the breaking of the, the the church into the Eastern Orthodox and then you know Catholic Church. But before that, um, I do want to ask about um, I guess you would say Augustine, right? Augustine here in the in the United yeah. States, we, we say Augustine in the United States. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, he's 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 a you know absolutely you know tremendous figure in, in early Christianity, very very impactful for for many theologians. But I guess. It, for the purposes of 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 what you're doing in the book, just describe why he was so important for pushing forward certain ideas, certain doctrines, if you will, certain uh, structures, and, and how big of his impact had this kind of ripple effect through throughout thinking about um, various ideas uh, for for centuries uh, to come. Right, Augustine. Now we will we will uh, adopt um, American pronunciation. Uh, he was, of course, still living within the existing empire. Uh, he died in four thirty, and the same date, the in in North Africa, where he was bishop of Hippo, mm -hmm. uh, in, in a city in North Africa, and uh, the Vandals took over. Uh, Really, they were beating at the walls of Hippo as he was dying. So he's right at the end of the Roman Empire, but he his his whole life is within the Western Empire. Mm -hmm. By this time, the uh, many um, very few of the Roman aristocrats are with those traditional education that Augustine had had spoke Greek. So they were alienated from the very rich tradition of Greek philosophy and Greek theology. So he didn't really know about um, a lot of the debates which had happened in the uh, theological world of uh, of the Greek East. Mm. It's uh, I quote an extraordinary statement that he said. Uh, I, I can't find any texts in Latin on the Trinity. Now, the Trinity had been established in 381 before Augustine had even been uh, converted, he didn't, he didn't, uh, before he'd even become a Christian. 
So it is quite extraordinary that how isolated the Western European theologians were from the Greek East. So he really was a brilliant mind who worked things out for himself. He he was really a, a bit of a pessimist. He certainly had an idea of um, the sinfulness of hum- humanity, mm-hmm. and it's also important to remember that when he was he went back to after his conversion in Milan in northern Italy, he went back to his native North Africa, mm-hmm. uh, where he was uh, he was uh, con- he was um, prevailed upon to become a bishop uh, of, of this little town Hippo on the coast. He was a minority because the uh, there was a, a, a much more austere, intransigent uh, group of Christians called the Donatists after Donatist, their, their original one of their bishops. And at the time of the persecutions and Diocletian, which were in the early 300s, the Donatists had refused to... Uh, give in to uh, the persecutors and had maintained a very strong tradition that they had they had been martyrs that they had kept the faith and uh, augustine um represented a much broader church probably a broader catholic church uh, and there was a conflict between those who uh, the donatists who were uh, Rurally based, very austere, and the rep- the church represented by Augustine. So he was always in a minority church uh, within North Africa. And one of the reasons um, that he is important is that he established a uh, a, a theory uh, that the those who uh, attempted to uh, you know, produce a uh, completely austere church should be. Uh, sh- th- th- they had um, convinced so many of their followers away from the true church that mm-hmm. there was the right of persecution of um, the Donatist um, elite. And um, so that's one element that he brought into the. Um, into Christianity, the right of persecution. He also brought in the idea of original sin, which was that Adam and Eve had committed the sin in uh, in the Garden of Eden, and they'd been expelled. And every single human being who has descended from Adam and Eve carried that sin with them. Mm-hmm. And you... If you were burdened with that sin, not only where you are orientated towards committing evil, but also you would go to hell if God had not offered his grace to you. And one of the most important elements of Augustine's uh, theology was that uh, it was completely up to God to offer grace to an individual, although it might be helped by receiving the sacraments of the, uh, of the Catholic Church. If not, you were uh, condemned to uh, hellfire forever. 
-hmm. And um, so this was quite an important uh, orientation, let's say, of uh, Christianity towards a more pessimistic idea of the the evil of humanity, the natural evil of humanity, which was not... um, uh, which was so intrinsic to human beings. Now, you could also have um, had the theology of that most people have some kind of goodness in them, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Augustine w- would not recognize that. Now, why was he important? Um, he wrote an enormous number of tracts. Uh, he wrote a famous um, text on the Trinity, which he uh, argued that the Trinity is in the, the human mind, is actually existing in the human mind, and uh, therefore, if you uh, reflected uh, deeply on your um, on your faith, you would recognize the Trinity. Uh, he also uh, had this idea that God was hovering over you, and he. In his Confessions, his most famous book, uh, the autobiography, which is one of the first great Western psychological autobiographies, Mm -hmm. uh, he talks of God sort of waiting for you. Uh, Even, you know, he had a long period before he was converted. He, he, He dabbled in many kinds of philosophies before he converted to Christianity. And he had this idea of God hovering around uh, above you and was waiting for you to recognize him. And that's also an important element of Augustine thinking. Mm -hmm. But what's most important for him was that he had, there was no other theologian until Anselm in the early 11th century, uh, who was of such a stature as uh, Augustine. And so uh, he had 600 years, really, to uh, to um, you know to fulfill himself and to be seen as a great authority. And so with that tradition of, of 600 years, he was able to uh, establish a position of great authority in the Catholic Church. And then Later in the Reformation, yep. the uh, the reformers also adopted his uh, ideas of original mm-hmm. sin and so on, and uh, the idea of human beings' depravity. Yeah, and, and and you know, for for many still Christians today, I mean, that's still a kind of doc, you know, doctrinal kind of uh, yeah. uh, element. I mean, so it's 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 incredible how we're. You know, people are still believing a lot of his, you know, systems and structures that he 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 put in place. Again, it's 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 uh, an understatement to say he's influential. I want to move into more of the eleventh uh, and twelfth centuries, and so before we jump into some of the themes there, just just give us whatever. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a big thing. Bunch of has been written on it, but you know, the Great Schism of ten fifty four is tremendous. And and you know, as you were talking about this kind of local Christianity, some of the tensions with, you know, the wealth of the church and power and things like that, there seems to be, um, you know, more and more of these kind of, uh, uh, these tensions kind of come to a head. Just what was the the biggest thing for you or in your mind as we, as we look at the kind of the intellectual mind or that space, how, how 
consequential was the, the schism in, in 1054? Well, there, obviously, we are talking about two linguistic cultures, a Latin West and a Greek-speaking yeah. uh, East. Mm -hmm. And so there was also, an in, there was an inevitably an enormous cultural gap yeah. between yeah. the two. Many other tensions grew up. As the papacy grew more absolute, the uh, Greek East, which had claimed to be the original church, and after all, the New Testament is in Greek, mm -hmm. and so uh, the uh, the early theologians were all Greek speaking, mm -hmm. and it's not until really about the third or fourth centuries that you start getting Latin theology. Mm -hmm. So. There was a resentment from the Greeks uh, about the growth of the papacy, and particularly the, the fact that the papacy claimed absolute power uh, over all Christians. Yeah. The Greek East had had a number of councils, uh, mainly supervised by emperors, in which they had established the uh, main doctrines of Christianity, Nicaea 325, uh, Council of Constantinople 381, yep. and the Greek East had the tradition that the councils of bishops should actually, to, to, you know, define doctrine. So mm. there was a tension there. Augustine uh, also made a uh, made a very important uh, division. Uh, when he declared the, his own conception of the Trinity, he uh, argued that the, uh, the uh, filioque, the, the, the spirit would also descend from the Son as, as well as God. And uh, the, uh, the Greek East had decided that uh, filioque, the, also the Son, was uh, heretical. They had declared that well before uh, Augustine had um, had uh, added this idea of the spirit coming from the Son as well as the as, as God, and the the Charlemagne and other popes had declared the filioque uh, as acceptable. And that was, a, it sounds extraordinary that a single word had created an enormously important division, theological division between East and West. Mm. Now, uh, the Pope um, uh, Leo, I think it was in 1054, in his last, um, his last move before he died, he decided to excommunicate the Greek East, and he sent a papal bull uh, with a cardinal uh, into Constantinople and thrust it onto the great altar of Santa Sophia, the great church in Constantinople, and uh, excommunicated the Greek East for all these divisions. And it's never been solved. Um, the, the the two the the two churches have never resolved themselves. There was an attempt in 1439 in Florence when the Easterners came to to the city of Florence uh, to try and discuss uh, 
some kind of reconciliation, and it looked like there was a temporary reconciliation, but um, it it collapsed very quickly. And uh, so the Greek East and the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church are still separated from the Catholic Church in the in the Western in Western Europe. It's it's interesting. I mean, every now and then you'll hear you know some maybe a slow news day or something, but you know, people will say like, well, maybe there's a chance they'll kind of you know unify again or whatever. <laughs> you'll see these articles pop up every now and then. It is pretty spectacular that we have literally had um, over <clears throat> two thousand years now, or I guess yeah, yeah. Or just about yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, or excuse me, a thousand years. Excuse me, a thousand years of yeah. of of this you know, this kind of thing. It's 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 remarkable. Um, so so in the Middle Ages, so you know between the part in the book, you know, a thousand AD and and twelve fifty, you're talking about the Middle Ages as the age of reason, and in in this part you discuss many. You talk about some cities and Justinian law, the Codex and Digest, but you also talk about. Um, universities and education for the elite becoming important. You, you mentioned Islamic schools in Baghdad, Cairo, um, before the medieval universities. I guess, what was the impact of maybe some of the Islamic schools, but then also the impact on just universities developing, of course, you know, for the elite initially, but what, how was that really important, um, you know, for some of the universities uh, that we have today and, and how this whole, um, a period was this kind of uh, uh, burst of uh, reason in this kind of age of reason. Uh, I think you've got to go back to the Arab conquests of these seventh and eighth centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, they, the Arabs, uh, had an extraordinary expansion uh, across North Africa into Spain. Yeah. Uh, taking over Egypt and what is now the Middle East. And they established um, a very strong civilization, uh, Islamic civilization. And um, one of the most important elements of it was a great emphasis on learning. And they adopted many of the original Greek texts. Mm. And this is why we, we um, have many of the um, the greatest of the Greek texts have been uh, come from from the Arabs. Now they were great. Uh, they were great champions of learning, and places like Cordoba in Spain and Baghdad uh, formed obviously centers of learning. And we we certainly find that things like mathematics, uh, the adulation of Aristotle, mm -hmm. and the uh, astronomy becomes really important in these um, uh, learning communities. We also know that they have vast libraries mm -hmm. uh, compared to the libraries in in the in the in in, in the Western Europe in the monasteries, uh, vast libraries, and so there is a great tradition of learning. Whether it uh, actually influenced the growth of Western universities is unclear. I have seen it argued, and I do actually uh, give a reference in my book to the man, the scholar who has argued it. Uh, but certainly, many of the, uh, as the universities uh, grew in Western Europe, 
many of the texts and the uh, philosophizing of the Arabs, like Avicenna, Avarez, came into into Western learning. Mm. And so uh, we certainly do have an enormous number of texts uh, and uh, of great um, emphasis on the contribution of the Arabs. I was in Vienna and uh, we, I was taking a tour there and we I went round the uh, big art gallery in Vienna and I'd seen a picture, um, I saw a picture there, uh, which I had never seen before by the, the uh, artist Giorgione, who uh, very few of his paintings survived. And it, I reproduce it in the, in, in the reopening of the Western mind because it shows a Greek philosopher, in front of him an, an Arab figure, and then in front of him a Western figure. Mm. And that was a recognition of, to... Uh, of the you know to to the west of the uh, of the contribution of the importance of um, a- Arabic um, uh, learning, uh, we certainly find, for instance, that uh, the well, we can come on to Copernicus. Perhaps we'll leave that for later. Uh, Copernicus, of course, uh, with the his Earth-centered um, universe. Uh, with his solar system rather than an Earth-centered universe was obviously a crucial figure in the reopening of the Western mind. And we'll perhaps we'll come on to that. But um, certainly the Arabs had uh, criticized the idea of an Earth-centered uh, universe well before mm. uh, Copernicus. And it's even suggested that Copernicus actually copied some of the Arabic texts Mm. Uh, rather than uh, be a, a brilliant intellect uh, of his own, uh, so you know we do we do have this um, still continuing debate about the contribution of the Arabs and how far they were uh, in advance of Western Europe in the certainly in the twelfth thirteenth century. Isn't the point here? I, I see some of these debates, and 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 some of them are motivated by you know different obviously motives. But isn't the point not who did it first, or who preserved what better, or you know who thought this thing for? I mean, some of that stuff can be important, I guess. But isn't the idea or the bigger takeaway the, the fact that other people around the world, in the West, in the East, are thinking about many of the same things, right? There's this human drive to understand where we come from, where we're going, how the earth works, how our universe works, how the natural world works, how all of these things. Isn't that in itself the fact that, you know, whether folks in the Arab world did this, you know, first or before or whatever, isn't the, the main takeaway here is that many people around the world at different points uh, we're thinking about really important issues and thinking about what was uh, of vast importance for humanity and for civilizations. Isn't that like kind of the big kind of takeaway here? Or is there something something else here that people get worked up about and debate? I think there's been a big uh, challenge to the old idea of Eurocentrism. Um, for instance, let's take the... Uh, a weaving machine. 
um, about a thousand um, AD, a, a new weaving machine came into um, a, a treadle mill where you you wove with your feet as well as your hands, mm -hmm. and um, it was it revolutionised the uh, the whole process of weaving and probably three times as fast. Mm. Now, we can trace it back to China, uh, you know, several hundred years before the Chinese had invented the treadle mill and it gradually infiltrated uh, across Asia into Europe. Mm -hmm. So we do have a lot of those um, uh, contributions that do seem to come from the Far East. The um, there there the, there are uh, of course an, uh, a lot of ideas. For instance, printing. Um, we seem to think that uh, the Chinese invented some form of printing early on. It came through the Arab world, but the Arab world uh, you had to uh, the complexity of the uh, writing made it impossible for the number of different shapes of writing to be actually produced economically. And so the one of the reasons why the Arabic world didn't develop printing was because they simply had too many um, too many different uh, symbols mm. uh, compared to what we have in Europe. And so it was quite uh, the emphasis was uh, obviously the incentive was to have some kind of printing version uh, because you could once you had set a form uh, of uh, 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 of uh, letters uh, you could print out um, hundreds obviously as we know now hundreds yeah. of examples of uh, the same text uh which completely destroyed the old idea of copying mm. which had to be done by hand but uh we do s seem to have some evidence that it was uh, you know there was uh, original developments in the east um but they the arabs were not able to exploit them simply because they had too many symbols uh, we have 26 symbols, so letters of the alphabet. So it's much easier for mm. us to create the uh, create the lettering. Mm. It's, it's it's very interesting how these debates keep going on, and I think it's you know I think it's a it's a it's a healthy debate. Uh, you know, if, if if people are trying to really understand more about you know <clears throat> more of our accuracy of our our history and our civilization, I want to jump to. Uh, to Aquinas. So obviously he's another huge, huge, huge figure in Western thought. What for you um, is the, the big takeaway for Aquinas for influencing intellectual thought? And how much, you're talking about in the book, how much do we feel the influence of Aristotle was for Aquinas and, and how he kind of uh, had these two systems of philosophy? So just talk about the influence of Aristotle and then you know, Aquinas' uh, contributions for, for intellectual thought at the time? Well, in the closing of The Western Mind, my first book, which came out about 20 years ago now, mm -hmm. 
I look at the um, the denigration, really, of the empiricism and materialism of Aristotle. He was the philosopher who looked at the natural world, who looked at animals and uh, plants, and uh, he also created a great system of um, logic and the, the way that you uh, approached philosophical problems. Uh, because of his materialism, because he was obsessed with understanding the natural world, he was uh, really pushed aside by Christians who preferred Plato, who uh, argued, and we may, may come back to Plato, who argued that there is a, a the reality that lies beyond the material world. Mm. But um, Aristotle was championed by the Arab philosophers. They liked his approach to uh, uh, the natural world. They also appreciated his use of logic and um, reason. And he said that the greatest achievement of human beings is reason. And you cannot flourish as a human being unless you use reason. So Originally, when the universities began in the 12th, 13th century, there was a, a lot of opposition by the popes to integrating Aristotle into the university curriculum. But by the 1250s, Aristotle, uh, may, many of his works have become incorporated in the curriculum and he becomes, therefore, the great philosopher. He's even referred to as the philosopher. Now, Christians, um, the Catholic Church certainly had um, a great deal of concern about integration of Aristotle. And there were a number of reasons. One was that he believed that the world had existed eternally. Uh, Christians believed that there, there had been a moment of creation from nothing by God. Yep. Uh, Aristotle also said there is something called the soul, but it's. I think the, the best example is to say uh, the coin. If you have a metal coin and you have an image on it, Aristotle would say that is the, the material is the coin and the image is the soul. If you melted down the coin, you would lose the image. And he therefore believed that when somebody died, the soul died with them. There is some confusion over whether he believed there was a sort of, uh, you know, a, a, an ethereal soul, a sort of world soul in which souls went to. But uh, certainly he, he did not believe in an afterlife as an individual. And of course, Christians did believe it's an essential element of Christianity to believe that there was a, the soul existed and was either... Um, uh, celebrated in heaven or or burned in hell. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a lot of problems of integrating Aristotle within Christianity. Mm. Now, Thomas Aquinas was obviously a, a brilliant intellect. He came from a noble family in uh, southern Italy, and uh, he... Uh, He'd been brought up, he'd been educated at the great Benedictine uh, monastery of Monte Cassino, 
and it was assumed by his family that he would, if he wanted to be a monk, he would go to one of the top sort of, uh, you know, elite, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the Harvards of uh, uh, of, uh, of Christianity. You know, you have a, a Monte Cassino had a very great reputation for being uh, copying out manuscripts and then creating a great library. And but he decided that he would reject everything and become a Dominican, and he was mentored by a very fascinating figure who's just had an, another biography around Albert the Great, who was one of the um, Dominican masters who uh, had been fascinated by the natural world. And he argued, uh, uh, Albert uh, the Great argued that the natural world is observation and experimentation. The theological world is revelation and faith. The two ultimately would meet. In other words, the world would, um, you know, the the material world fitted with the theological world. Uh, We don't know quite how much uh, Albert passed on to Thomas Aquinas, but Thomas Aquinas got fascinated by Aristotle. And we find that in his early works, he, he, he gives a number of quotations from Augustine, but he also gives a lot of quotations from Aristotle. And he, in a sense, he fudges it a bit um, by sort of claiming that really Aristotle wasn't perhaps completely um, uh, unchristian, and you could sort of manipulate uh, Aristotle's texts to to fit in with Christianity. Uh, so he did integrate in the in the great Summa Summa Theologia, which was his great work, which was uh, supposed to be a training manual for other Dominicans. He integrates the 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 two, and at first there is a lot of opposition, um, particularly from the Franciscans. The Franciscans and the Dominicans were actually rivals for each other. And uh, it took 50 years before the Pope accepted that Thomas uh, was, was, was even um, received into heaven and therefore was made a saint. Mm. Obviously, over time, uh, Thomas Aquinas has been seen as the great intellectual who was able to open Christianity to other mm. traditions of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And that is his, uh, he's seen still as one of the, the, the great intellectuals of the Catholic Church as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is uh, what he was able, you know, what, what he was able to do uh, was to integrate the uh, a pagan philosophy with Christianity and therefore bring in all the uh, elements of the brilliance of Aristotle's mind into. Christianity and, and rather than conflicting with Christianity. Mm. So that's his achievement. Yeah, no, I, I, that's very nicely put. I think that that's, you know, sometimes people can forget, you know, when they've heard this or learned this or whatever, that just how essential that kind of merging was. 
um, as we we move into the 13th and 14th and 15th centuries, you know, humanism becomes kind of big on the scene here, right? So there's obviously other figures, but let, we'll stay with 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 humanism. Um, you know, how how much do you see uh, Cicero's influence here? Um, how do you see you know Petrarch, the father of of humanism? Uh, how, how do we look at humanism as an as a, as a system coming online as as these kind of windows are being opened now uh, for for kind of uh, intellectual thought during the you know the the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries? Well, the word humanism today tends to mean your anti-religion. Um, you know, we we talk of humanists as people who reject any find uh, kind of uh, religious belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the uh, Middle Ages and the early Renaissance, humanitas was uh, considered the return to the classical text. And this is, I suppose, one of the main themes of the reopening of the Western mind, yeah. is that I stress how important the classical texts were uh, for reviving learning. So uh, we can we can start with Petrarch. Um, Petrarch, uh, 1304 to 1374, uh, 14th century figure, often seen as the father of um, of, of the Renaissance, of father of humanities, of humanism. Uh, he uh, had been brought up by his father to enjoy la- the original Latin texts. Mm-hmm. He was a member of the church. He actually served in the papal administration in Avignon, where the popes had uh, had, um, did, had had the moved from Rome and the the Avignon succession of um, uh, when the, when the uh, the popes were had been um, you know, had had settled in. Uh, Avignon. Um, he was very critical of the wealth of the church. He loved the original texts of the uh, uh, of the classical authors, and he went round searching in monastic libraries for any kind of original text. And one of his great discoveries was a text of Cicero the 1st century BC Roman orator and statesman and philosopher, uh, his letters to his great friend Atticus, who lived in uh, Atticus uh, from Attic, um, uh, the the nickname of Atticus, who was an enormously wealthy friend who had moved to Greece. And uh, so he had established... um, this idea of searching through the monastic libraries for the original texts, and that was his great discovery. He um, he's famous for um, believing that the old world, the the old world of Aristotle in the universities, which had become very embedded, and stagnant the universities had continued to teach the same texts over and over again there was no idea that uh, with a modern university that you that that learning is progressive that you have new ideas and so on 
particularly, he condemned, uh, in a famous text called On His Own Ignorance, uh, he condemned the scholastic language of the universities, which had got so intricate and so removed from any classical Latin, which he thought was a, the pure original. He talked about uh, the period before his own life as the Dark Ages. And this is where you get the, 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 the theme of the Dark Ages. Uh, it's a very contested term by historians at the moment because uh, uh, you know, uh, scholars are arguing that it was perhaps the, the, the Dark Ages were not so dark after all, and it's rather denigrating to call them that. Uh, he believed that uh, you had to go back to the classics, that um, Cicero um, uh, became the key figure because Ciceronian prose was considered the elite form of pure Latin. Mm. Cicero had come to power as an orator, Unlike most of his fellow Romans in the in the Roman Republic in the first century BC, who had come to power through winning victories, Cicero was brilliant orator. He had travelled to Greece and had spent, I think, a couple of years there learning how the Greeks spoke, and so he knew Greek perfectly. Unlike uh, many of the later uh, Roman aristocrats. He um, played a, an important part in political life. He was a consul at one point, uh, but he was eventually assassinated. But in his old, uh, in the turmoil following the assassination of Caesar, in uh, he he died in forty three BC. But after, but in the years in his old age, he. Before his assassination, he had written a number of works of philosophy, translating um, and using Greek philosophers in in his own texts, and therefore uh, he was an enormously important influence because he wrote such good, pure Latin. Mm. Um, I've even uh, in the 1960s, I met somebody who was studying Latin at, a, at, at what we uh, call A-level, um, the final years of schools, and she was um, saying that uh, I was taught to write Latin not using any word that Cicero had not used himself. Mm. Wow. And that's even in the wow. 1960s. Wow. Uh, so the tradition of Cicero being the, uh, the, the, the uh, father of pure Latin uh, persisted even into uh, into the twentieth century. Uh, Petrarch, because he had initiated such a um, enthusiasm for Latin texts, has been called the father of humanism. Mm. But uh, in the fifteenth century, you do get um, uh, an enormous expansion of intellectual thought. Uh, Petrarch, had, had, I said, was based in Avignon. 
he later moved to Venice and he claimed that he was going to leave his entire library to uh, the Venetians, but he was insulted by some young people who uh, ins he, he considered insulting uh, behavior and he stomped off uh, with his library and he died in central Italy. Now, the the real movement of humanism really transfers to uh, Florence. You have a chancellor, Salutati, uh, in the end of the uh, 14th century, who decides that uh, humanism is so important that you really have to not only know Latin, but you have to know Greek. And he brought over a Greek scholar called Chrysophoras, who brought several Greek texts with him, and he started educating the uh, intellectual elite of Florence in Greek texts as well. Yeah. And some of them uh, were able to translate some of the Greek texts into pure Latin for the first time. Translations had happened before that in the 12th, 13th century of, from the Greek, but they had been very, very rudimentary and um, clumsy translations. Mm. And the, in the 15th century, you get people like Leonardo Bruni, Lorenzo Valla, who were the great figures who were translating the uh, Greek texts into elegant Latin. Mm. and. So you've got um, a really an enormously wide variety of classical texts which were available. And they infiltrated into things like politics, for instance, the, the Roman Republic, which had been overthrown by the emperors uh, from the, in, in, in the Roman Republic. Uh, many of the cities of northern Italy were republicans, were republics, and uh, they had great republican traditions, and therefore those texts of the classical world were enormously important to them. And so uh, you, you get uh, history comes back because the great Greek historians, Thucydides, Herodotus, and many others, mm -hmm. uh, influence the growth of history so that you get, for instance, um, the histories of, uh, uh, of um, Leonardo Bruni's famous 12-volumed history of Florence, where he begins to uh, criticize some of the legends. He's beginning to bring rational thought into the writing of history. Mm. And uh, it's uh, remarkable in his lovely Renaissance tomb in Florence, uh, he is buried with the last of uh, last volume of his twelve volume history on his uh, on his chest. Mm. <laughs> Might we all be buried with <laughs> with someone <laughs> you know, one of our works on our chest? Uh, but uh, I, I think uh, to ex expect a, a a marble effigy of oneself is uh, a bit. <laughs> Pricey. <laughs> it's, it's quite, it's quite funny. Uh, but th this came really important. Um, I, 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 I uh, the rediscovery of the classical texts yeah. was so influential 
Yeah. And uh, you get the, the rediscovery of Plato, for instance, um, at that, the end. That, that was that was my that was that was my next uh, my next point here is that as you get reintroduced to all these classical texts, you had mentioned it a bit ago, that Plato became more in vogue again, right, if you will, yeah. and people were having this kind of resurgence in Western thought. Obviously, these 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 uh, you know these texts were were important here, but why Plato? There was some with Aristotle, as we mentioned with Aquinas, but why Plato was becoming also more uh, you know reexamined again in this period. Um, in my closing of the Western mind, I argue that Plato's philosophy was integrated within Christianity in the sense that Plato argued that the immaterial world, the world that you can access through reason thought, is more important than the material world, which is always changing and is corrupt and uh, in decay and uh, so Plato really becomes integrated into Christian theology, and therefore his original texts are forgotten, almost completely forgotten. Uh, I mentioned two or three which were known um, before the 15th century. One of the most important breakthroughs comes in 1439 in Florence with that council of the Eastern Church and the Western Church. One of the scholars who comes over is a chap called Plethon, and he is a great Platonist, um, and even to the extent that some people thought, thought he was pagan. Um, he wasn't Christian at all because he'd so obsessed with Plato. And he brought over many of the works of Plato, and I'd quote in the, the reopening um, the way that he he um, lectured on Plato in 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 Florence when he was over in Florence. The Medici decided that they they had copies of all the uh, I suppose whether they received them from Plethon or not. They had copies of all the um, Platonic dialogues and Plato. His he took a theme and he often created a, a figure, a character called Socrates, uh, which may or may not have been the real Socrates, who then has discussions with people and who demolishes uh, their, their views and uh, creates what Plato's own views are. Uh, so these dialogues um, exist, and it was a chap called Marsilio Ficino who was took on his mind he had some kind of religious crisis and he believed that there was this conflict between which was the greatest aristotle or plato and uh I, I, one of the themes one of the quotations that was made at the time was that aristotle is read by more people plato is actually the greater one he may be less you know, he's, a, he's more elitist and so on. And Marsilio Ficino just had some kind of religious crisis, it seems to have been. And he decided that um, Plato was, as August, Augustine had said, Plato was closer to Christianity. And he decided that he would translate all the um, dialogues that existed of Plato into mm. Latin. And his translations were well accepted. I mean, they were uh, they were they were brilliantly um, 
inventive. Um, and they really, until the 19th century, Ficino's translations were still held in uh, great repute by some scholars. Um, so he brought back Plato into the Western tradition. Um, it, it didn't. It didn't really become really popular. I mean, you, you could read Aristotle, um, particularly on ethics. Um, ethics, um, yep. the Nicomachean ethics, mm -hmm. uh, were very down to earth, yeah. pragmatic. Yeah, you you look at um, an issue and you don't go to either extreme, you you but you are prepared to change your mind when a new situation works. It's no point being courageous. Courage is a good thing, but if your chap is uh, is armed and you tackle him, um, that that is not a good use of courage. Mm -hmm. So Aristotle was still really Im important um, in many ways. And so Plato was really for the elite, those who were deep into philosophy. Mm. So it, it's not really until the 19th century that you get, for instance, in British universities, you get a real study of Plato. Mm. And uh, he comes back um, as an important figure. And of course, um, you know, it's been said that um, he he any philosophical issue uh, plato starts mm -hmm. you know, confronting it mm -hmm. and so on so uh, it's it was a very important that's why i gave a whole chapter to it that was mm -hmm. a really important uh, rediscovery of yeah. bringing back plato into the western tradition intellectual tradition mm, yeah so we we have this this resurgence of of kind of Greek thought and and kind of having this kind of uh, uh, element in in uh, in Western thought as as we're expanding in the 14th and, and 15th century, I guess you know obviously we could talk about a little bit about the Gutenberg you know uh, printing press and how influential that was, but also what do we think about as we're in the 14th and uh, 15th century about how Christianity was spreading across Europe, but also this. Um, kind of surge in exploration, building maps, understanding ourselves in space, and, and more exploratory around the world, how, how much of that started to become kind of a central focus for, for much of Western uh, Europeans? Uh, we had, um, in medieval times, we didn't have an enormous amount of trade. There was trade within the Mediterranean, but mm -hmm. going outside the Mediterranean was very risky. Mm. Uh, but there was a story of that there were riches in India. Um, the, it was mainly, of course, going over land. Um, and people didn't even know uh, until the 1490s whether Africa had a, had a, had a you know, you could get around Africa. Mm -hmm. There was yeah. an idea that it might just be a single landmass, which went on and on and on. Mm -hmm. um, but then uh, we, we, you, you got to India through uh, the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and the, uh, the Spanish decided, and the Portuguese who were beginning to explore out into the Atlantic, could you actually get to India um, from the other side? Mm -hmm. And that's why Columbus went off in 1492. Now, he thought that he had discovered India. Mm -hmm. 
and that's why we store we we still talk of native indians mm-hmm. uh, or traditionally we used to talk of native indians mm-hmm. and um but then there was a sudden extraordinary discovery of that the americas were an enormous landmass which nobody had had believed existed now the medieval map makers had uh, two particular kinds of maps one was the map of mundi which was the christianized map with jerusalem at the center uh, we have a very fine copy of that in hereford cathedral in britain and um, the other maps were the Portland maps, which were uh, on compass bearings with the, with the development of the compass. Uh, they were um, they only managed to you 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 took one point and you decided where the compass point was, and then you went uh, to the next point and you 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 fitted that in. The problem was that as soon as you got into the Atlantic, with the distances between land masses so much larger, a compass um, map, a Portland map, would actually spiral you round and end you up in the North Pole. So that wasn't much hope. So there was um, the rediscovery of uh, Ptolemy, the second century astronomer and geographer, his Geographici, uh, which was uh, had used longitude and latitude as we still do. Mm. Uh, this was a you know a, um, a Greek Greek invention of, of using longitude and latitude, and he had been very successful in measuring out the landmass of Europe and uh, the Far East, mm. uh, but he of course had no conception that the Americas existed. Um, there had been some really quite accurate maps made from the geographici, but of course, as soon as the Americas were discovered, uh, it it became obsolete. Um, it was still enormously respected, even into the seventies. Uh, there were there were um, uh, attempts to produce Ptolemy's maps uh, as a sort of mark of honor, really, to Ptolemy. But of course, as soon as the Americas were discovered, then um, uh, the whole world, the whole world view, um, changed dramatically because you had a landmass which nobody had known it existed, uh, and certainly not in Western Europe uh, had not known that it existed. The problem you got were twofold. One was that you were Christian and you believe that you have the right to convert everybody. Mm-hmm. So you had millions of pagans. Now, there was a great debate. Did they, had they uh, ever heard the word of God? And if they had, they'd relapse, so they all go to hell anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, or were they people who had never heard the word of God? Um, and generally that view predominated, but the problem of conversion was was uh became dominant one uh for the uh the franciscans and the dominicans both were leading um pioneers in conversion the problem was that as the spanish infiltrated uh, the th- particularly um southern america they began realizing there was an enormous amount of gold 
and it became integrated into uh, the Spanish economy. And this meant that really control of the economy became more important mm. than uh, any kind of benign conversion. Mm. And so you got a dominance, a colonial dominance of, of the Americas um, by anybody who visited them. And of course, as you know, in North America, the uh, tradition of colonization and, and destruction of native cultures uh, was became uh, a dominant one uh, as uh, as the Europeans uh, moved uh, moved uh, westwards. Uh, we all we all know the, the tragedy of those those mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this idea that um, conversion was uh, correct that this this made the Christianity. A, a European elitist, um, an elitist ideology, really. It also meant that the tradition grew up that this these areas were exploitable economically, and so you get, of course, the uh, the uh, colonialism uh, as an economic endeavor, and you also get uh, you need to have labor on the sugar plantations of the West Indies, and so you get the slave trade. It was first initiated by, in the 15th century, by the Pope actually saying that it was right to be, uh, to enslave um, Saracens and pagans in Africa. Mm. And it was agreed that the uh, peoples of, uh, the native peoples of the Americas were sufficiently advanced for them not to suffer enslavement. So you we you had to import individuals, and uh, of course that it was both uh, both Protestants and Catholics, and mm-hmm. Protestants of course became with um, biblical um, biblical support mm-hmm. of the slave trade. And I there was a very interesting book by Matthew Taylor. Lots of books came out after I'd written this book. Uh, and Matthew Taylor, the a book called The Interest, and he uh, relates all the biblical um, uh, narratives in support of slavery, which, uh, so the abolition of slavery is often seen as a Christian endeavor, but it's an intra-Christian, in, mm. you know, mm. conflict. Mm. <clears throat> Uh, but the whole idea of discovering a whole new peoples and a whole new species of plants and uh, animals and all kinds of things sparked off this idea that the world was not, you know, you, you could not just absorb whatever came through in, from the West, the Western traditions and the Asian traditions, there was a whole new world. And this um, challenged all kinds of ideas about humanity, about, you know, the the idea grew up of the noble savage. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the ideas was that uh, Europe is corrupt. It has terrible brutalities. Uh, There's an 
appalling, devastating wars, the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648, was particularly devastating for Europe. It's you what the descriptions of Germany during that, the German states during that war, are very similar to what we can see the destruction in Ukraine at the moment, complete devastation. And um, so there was a lot of idea that perhaps these native peoples of Americas had actually remained innocent. So this idea of the noble savage comes in. Uh, Montaigne, who's one of my great heroes, my literary heroes in the 1580s, actually says, you know, um, we uh, we are corrupt. Possibly he 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 met some uh, uh, some people who've been brought over from native people from brought over from Americas, and he met them, and he said that perhaps they uh, they are the truly civilized, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we are we have lost civilization. Civilization doesn't mean anything uh, when we we are uh, daggers drawn in religious wars and persecutions and so on. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, this whole idea, it, it infused um, such an idea of uh, possibilities mm. of that the world is, isn't centered on Europe. Mm. It is, you know, it is, it, there are so many um, new traditions and new experiences that we can have by going um envisaging um, um the americas and it's suggested by some people that that started off the revival of scientific thinking mm. because you were presented with so many different species uh that you had to think mm-hmm. creatively about mm. the natural world mm. yeah no that makes sense i mean literally that you're your your concept of the world becomes so much more enlarged that you have to kind of recalibrate how you how you view it. I want to just touch real quick on obviously the Reformation. It's something that you mentioned in the book. Uh, obviously, it's a huge topic. So many books written on it. There's been books written about Calvin and Luther and all of these things. But um, in the book, you talk about how um, you know that there the works of Calvin and Luther and how important they were for the Reformation was complicated and it was complex and so and then there's a counter-reformation as well and so i'm just wondering for for your view in terms of this kind of reopening of the western mind you know how was the reformation and then the works of calvin and luther uh huge in in shaping western thought and, and civilization well it's a very good question i mean the first question is uh, how were they able to establish themselves? I mean, uh-huh. there's Calvin and Luther, and there's a lesser figure, Zwingli, who's um, uh, who's also quite interesting. Um, they did manage to establish themselves. They got a, they got secular protection. Um, Calvin went to Geneva, of course, and he took over Geneva. Uh, Luther was uh, protected by the local elector of Wittenberg, uh, and so they were able to set out their own. Um, theologies and Luther and Calvin disagreed on many things. I mean, they disagreed particularly about the Eucharist. Yeah. So you do get a, 
a number of competing religions, and they are competing, of course, with uh, revived Catholicism, uh, the Counter-Reformation, the Catholic Church sorts out a lot of the abuses uh, and improves education of priests and so on. Uh, so you, you, you move into uh, a whole series of conflicting religions. Um, Dermot McCulloch, who is a great historian of uh, Christianity in this country, uh, I'm sure he sells very well in America as well, uh, he says that one of the the results of the Reformation was two centuries of religious warfare. Mm. Um, now, what is very interesting, I think there are two points about the Reformation. One is that they are, it is often seen as the return of reason. Mm -hmm. to, but if you look at um, Calvin and Luther, both of them were, talked of the emotional commitment to Christ mm. and to God. Mm. And they talked a great deal about uh, emotional commitment. You still have people who are evangelical churches in, 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 in the States, more than in this country, uh, when you are born again. Mm -hmm. And they are within evangelical Protestant, they're not Catholics. <laughs> the, the evangelical churches, this idea of commitment, emotional commitment to Christ, mm -hmm. which many people uh, say is a, is a, a turning point of, in your own life, you know. Um, so they were more um, emotion than reason. Um, they go back to Augustine, and that's... If you were trying to be progressive, you would abandon Augustine. Mm. I mean, you, I'm not saying anything about the fact that he was extraordinarily brilliant. He was a brilliant <laughs> mind. He was just one mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, you can see why the Eastern Church said you better have a council of all the bishops mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than one person. Um, but they adopted um, uh, Augustine. And they had this, Calvin was very keen on predestination, that God mm -hmm. knew whether you would be saved or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, there's nothing much you can do about it because he's already decided. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. um, so that is one of the features. Um, I wouldn't argue that, um, that uh, the Protestant churches are necessarily addicted to reason. Um, and that's I, I would you know I I think I challenge one or two you know one one or two conventional ideas there. Mm -hmm. I think that reason came for very different reasons for with the the discovery of the new world and the, uh, the growth of trade and the growth of science and so on. And there's a whole question of the relationship between Christianity and science, which I give a section to. Now, the other feature of the Protestant churches was that they became nationalistic, so that Lutheranism and Germany and Prussia, particularly the main, the most important state in Germany, uh, are linked together. Yeah. In, in this country, Anglicanism 
which is the Protestant, is a sort of moderate Protestantism. It's, it's not very extreme. Uh, it fitted well with sort of 18th century rural parishes of, um, you know, uh, with uh, scholarly parish, you know, vicars and rectors. Uh, Anglicanism, you, if you did not believe in the Trinity, you could not go to a university. Mm -hmm. um, there was a chap called Charles Bradlaw who was elected a member of parliament in the 1860s, 70s, and he refused to make the oath of office on the Bible. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he was not accepted in the house, even though he'd been elected. And he, there was a great battle before he, you were allowed to, um, to say that I, I'm, I swear allegiance to, you know, the queen and king or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, but I'm not going to do it on a Bible. Mm -hmm. And it was a so the the nationalism of uh, the Protestant religions became very powerful. Um, and when the outbreak of the First World War came, the French said, we have a Catholic God. The, the Germans said, God is, is mit uns, God is with us. The Russians said, we are Russian Orthodox and our, you know, we'll, we'll take the banners in. Um, to the, uh, we'll take the sacred banners into warfare. The Anglicans said this is a war for civilization. They each had their own god. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, you do get a split of Christianity, uh, which, of course, still exists. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, oh, yeah. uh, competing Christianities. So one of the uh, results of the Reformation, one of the influences of the Reformation, is the fragmentation of Christianity and mutually competing Christians uh, and gradually sensible Puritans, particularly philosophers, sorry, not Puritans, philosophers, uh, in the 17th century, after the devastation of the Thirty Years' War, which was a nationalistic and religious war, uh, began to elaborate concept of toleration. It's, it's, it's interesting. So... As 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 you as we've been talking, you know, we we've been talking. Many people will say, "Well, like you know, how, there's so much of this on on Christianity, right?" And of course, much of 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 uh, you know, the so-called West is, is is largely influenced by by Christianity. So, I guess my my final question here is, and and you you mentioned it in the in the in the, I think the one of the last few chapters of of the book. My question is: Is how influential was Christianity truly on Western thought and the intellectual life during the Enlightenment? Um, some people give it too much weight. Some people maybe not enough. Um, I know you mentioned some of the work I think by Tom Holland and even uh, Joe Henrik. Uh, I think it's, yeah. you mentioned some of you know because they they talk about the spread of Christianity and how much it was culturally for for the you know the West and, and Western thought. Um, but yeah, how much how influential was Christianity on Western thought and intellectual life, just kind of broadly? And um, you know, what are the what are the true pieces of the reopening of, of the Western mind? Well, I think if you look through human societies throughout the world, every society evolves some kind of religious belief. 
and uh, even if Christianity had never happened, uh, there would have been some form of European religion. Uh, we do have um, some uh, idea of what the Romans believed, and we also believe uh, the, the Celtic peoples after the, the fall of the Roman Empire had certain concepts, religious concepts. And one of them, uh, one of the results is the integration of many of the pagan customs, mm -hmm. uh, particularly relating to agriculture, because everybody lived, had to live on the land before the growth of cities and the growth of industry, uh, integrated within Christianity. And the way in which people used Christian symbols, and some of these were obviously very satisfying emotionally to people and all obviously christianity has um, had an impact um on, on art painting and wonderful cathedrals wonderful music uh, also um christianity has inspired many many great acts of charity, you know, um, communities um, acting very um, creatively in, in, in spreading education in the, in the so-called colonies <laughs> uh, and so on. So Christianity, you cannot deny the influence of Christianity as a force. What you can argue against is that it's very very difficult to innovate in christianity can you imagine you know how how many pe people with new ideas new progressive ideas have had enormous battles i mean we have in this country we have the the creation of women priests it was an enormous battle mm -hmm. and i did meet one um, uh, woman vicar, uh, she was talking about, uh, she was one of the very earliest, and she said that when she was in a procession in the church, one of the men started banging her on the back. <laughs> you know, there's still a lot of prejudice against um, women priests, uh, even though they've been well integrated and uh, uh, in, into the Anglican community. There is also a great battle over ho the homosexuality, uh, the question of whether you um, commemorate gay marriages. Uh, at the moment, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the leader of the Anglican communion worldwide, has said that you can have a blessing for a gay relationship, and the, he's been denounced in, by the African bishops mm -hmm. doing that even going that far he says no we we can have a blessing but we can't actually have a proper marriage mm -hmm. uh, so it's if if it, it's extraordinarily difficult intellectually to to actually innovate within christianity yeah. and that was why thomas aquinas i think deserves you know an accolade oh, yeah. i mean he, he is a conservative catholic in many ways but it, it was an act of genius mm -hmm. to be able to integrate the two because right. it's very rare that you do get uh, a process of innovation like mm -hmm. that within in intellectual Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't some brilliant 
Christian minds mm -hmm. who have um, rethought and within the conventional Orthodox Christianity have not given new ideas and new perspectives. Mm -hmm. There are many, many great intellectuals within Christianity, but it is extraordinarily difficult to keep up to date with society's changes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, uh, there are enormous conflicts and very bitter conflicts. And it is a pity that, you know, you were founded by Jesus Christ, who was a man of, of, of you know, seems of compassion. Mm -hmm. uh, but so many of the debates have become accordingly bitter. Oh, yeah. And there is no way of really resolving how you get Christian doctrine, um, how, how, how you define and justify Christian doctrine, uh, particularly in a changing society. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is called The Reopening of the Western Mind, The Resurgence of Intellectual Life from the End of Antiquity to the Dawn of the Enlightenment. Um, I'm sure this is out everywhere. Where can people find the book and where can people find find you, Charles? You can find me in England. I mean, I live in rural Suffolk. <laughs> uh, you, if you go to Alan, you can find a lot of my previous books because I've written a lot um, mm -hmm. on these subjects. And uh, one day, perhaps I will I, I, I come over to the States, you know, and uh, be able to talk face to face with uh, you and, uh, and your colleagues. And I have a son in L.A. Uh, nice. He's living in L.A. He's a... Uh, a psychologist uh, working with oh, very the nice. meditation app Headspace. Oh, very nice. Very, very nice. Many, many Americans use. And he's, oh, that's uh, right, yeah. he's a Brit who's uh, been, you know, he's immigrated <laughs> to, to, uh, to the States, uh, which is a first for the Freeman family. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that's, that's great. That's, that's wonderful. And yeah, yeah, next time over across the pond, I'll, I'll have to uh, look you up. Uh, Charles, yeah, this is too. this has been such a wonderful conversation. I, I I can't say enough. There's so much rich history. You have a exquisite way of telling the all of the 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 facts of of so many things in a, in a really balanced way. And I, I I enjoyed reading the book and I enjoyed talking with you. And uh, I I can't say enough thanks for for all of your time and energy. Really, well, it's been a great pleasure. Um, it's always fun to talk about it. Uh, but these are very complex issues. Um, yes. And uh, very difficult to explain, but we've we've had a very good long conversation. Yes. And uh, I'm very thankful to you, Xavier, for yes. uh, introducing it and and starting it off and initiating it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank, thank thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>